0: Eventually, the musicians all started kind of getting setups where they could record at home, you know? People would pass files to musicians around and just say, Hey, I need guitars on this. Can you put guitars on this track for me? And they're like, sure. So passing guitars, you know, files around to guitar players, keyboard players. When drummers finally started getting rooms in their own homes and building, you know, rooms and acoustical rooms, you know, that started really
1: coming back and affecting me now. I was originally going to fly over to the States to do some recording for this music. One of the things that has obviously happened is COVID and that sort of destroyed the idea of travel and touring and anything like that. We're actually going to be shipping this, my gear or the same gear over to the studio in the states so that we can work remotely. So we'll be setting up a Zoom call, not unlike this, we're going to be using a a program called Audio Moves, which is a um, high speed, high fidelity plugin essentially that you put in Pro Tools or Logic. You can hear exactly what they're hearing in real time.
2: Hey, it's Jeff Deverter, the host of Cloud Talk. Now, as we continue our series of the tech behind the industry, you may have already figured out that this week it's all about the music industry. We'll look at how technology has impacted the creation of music inside of the studio, the securing of the legal rights of music and songs, as well as how it's impacted an individual artist and his ability to create and make his music available to the world. And it's his music you're actually hearing, by permission, right now.
3: The line between application and infrastructure is virtually invisible in these modern apps. The kind of thing that a global computing fabric with immense resilience and scale can deliver without even breaking the sweat. That's really what the promise of the cloud's always been. It's all focused on the business objectives. That's where we craft the plan. In the tech world we like to celebrate the lone
1: genius, but I'm just gonna tell you right now, they're just the convenient face as founders to focus on.
0: Welcome to Cloud Talk. Here's your host, Jeff DeVerter.
2: So as we begin our exploration to how technology has impacted the music industry, I thought we would start with how music is actually created. And to do that, we're gonna talk to an engineer and producer in Nashville, Tennessee, named Steve Dady. Now, Steve owns his own recording studio and has been doing this since 1985. Now, I first met Steve in a recording studio in Houston, Texas, where I was interning and he was the head engineer. And my goal here is that you understand a little bit of. how we used to make music back then, and how it's created today. Now, Steve has lived this entire transformation and continues to be as passionate about music creation as he was in the mid-80s as he is today. Well, well, why don't we start by just sort of a, a bit of a compare and contrast. So, um, let, let's go back to the, the late 80s, and we're going to record, we're going to do a recording session. You've walked into the studio. What, what are some of the core components that you need to make this happen? And who has to come in and run this stuff?
0: Well, you've got a, a reel-to-reel analog tape machine <clears throat> that has to be aligned before every session or before every day. So you've got, Josh, uh, I couldn't even align a machine right now if, I, if it, my life depended on it, but you had to, s- to set the EQ on, on every single track, uh, the bi- bias, adjustments, Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes you'd have to, um, uh, adjust the the tape machine heads. You definitely had to clean them and demagnetize the heads. Um, that was just, you know, to get the, the tape machine ready to go. And then, you know, you had, uh, you know, your microphones and your console and a, <clears throat> a whole uh, module on the console that might get noisy or be bad. You'd have to get in there and clean them out and just, uh, change out resistors and Capacitors and such, so you know a lot, a lot more technical stuff involved in just getting you know your session up and rolling, and a lot more preparation.
2: Yeah, it was it was definitely very hands on, as you mentioned. You know, if a if a channel in the console, and by definition, you know, if somebody might think of a of a of a recording console, I mean, these were very big desks. These these were bigger than furniture, and for every channel that you know a track that you wanted to record, and you know the reel to reel that was in that. And that studio was a 24-track recording studio. And sometimes we recorded and brought in an extra machine and made it 48. But but ultimately, for every one of those, you had to have a way to receive an input in from a musician, and you had to have a way to get that back from the tape, which is what made these things so big. There was literally physical everything along the way. So you had great microphones or inputs and then different components along the way. But it also was incumbent that every musician you wanted to record had to be in that room as well and in some cases at the same time but life's a little different now in fact we were just visiting before we pushed record on this little session on uh, on the different software technology that's used but but what is a recording studio what is your recording studio in in Nashville Tennessee you know what's that what's that look like yeah well i mean if you don't
0: mind i mean let me just kind of go go back to the way kind of how things transitioned for me when I got here. I've I've been in Nashville since 1991. You know, when I got here, um, I was working at studios all over Music Row, hopping around from studio to studio, and there might be a certain studio that was really big and great for tracking rhythm section. So it was big enough to get all the players, uh, maybe a couple guitar players, keyboard player, bass player, drummer, and every player had a cartage company. So the cartage company that Mm. that musician hired to 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 lug their cartage their gear from studio to studio and store their gear would always get to yeah. the studio before every day, set it up, have it have it ready exactly the way the player likes it. And then the player comes in and basically gets in and gets sounds and, and you're ready to 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 start recording for the day. Um, so that's the way things were when I moved here. Um, and uh we're recording on real-to-real analog tape machines <clears throat> over the years. I mean, it was expensive to track because if you wanted to track with a rhythm section, just getting all the gear delivered and set up for each musician was a thousand bucks. So that's before, you know, wow. before you hit the each studio. musician. Well, total for each, for all the musicians, total. Each musician, yeah, yeah. some of them were, you know, a couple hundred bucks, you know, just depends. But But the keyboard player, for example, He's going to have his Hammond B3 delivered. He's going to have his huge Rhodes suitcase delivered, his vintage, all the vintage keyboards, his big keyboard racks. You know, the studio would have a piano most of the time. And then sometimes some studios would have a B3 organ, uh, but some but some of them didn't. Guitar player would have coffins, they call them, just big cases, coffins full of guitars. He would have no less than 30 guitars in a, on, a, on a recording session and multiple amps. Um, big racks of effects and pedal boards um bass players usually had very little cardage sometimes they would just carry their own stuff to the studio maybe they didn't have a cardage company but some did um and the drummers they would have their drum kit all of their percussion djembe's hand drums bongos congas everything so that's the way things were in 1991 when i came here and It was really hard to track with a rhythm section. You had to have a big enough budget and budgets started getting smaller, you know, through the nineties, you know, budgets were getting smaller. I was using, I was programming a lot of tracks, you know, you program with samplers and stuff like that to try to make a really great sounding foundation for a track. Then you'd bring in guitar players, bass players, other keyboard players to come and fill in the gaps. But I would start by, you know, as a producer, you know, with my guitar in hand, you know, programming the drum track and then maybe adding bass and and then guitar. Right. Uh, Because it was too expensive for most projects that I was working on to work with a full rhythm section. I mean, what happened was uh, the evolution of some things came along technology wise. I mean, the, Mm -hmm. the console started changing. We were talking about before we started doing this podcast, we were talking about the Yamaha O2Rs and those those automated digital consoles where all of a sudden you don't have, you can mix a song with auto, you know, full automation and not have to pay, you know, $3,500 a day for a big studio in Nashville, you know, Tascam DA88 and Alesis, uh, ADATs came out and you could do digital recording in smaller settings. And so I had converted part of my house that I was living in did a majority of this project in my own house and uh, I ended up mixing it at another studio, but it was sort of an experiment. Mm -hmm. And when my wife saw how much more money I made by not paying for, you know, big studio time in in Nashville and how much more money I could make by doing it, you know, and converting, you know, our house into uh, a studio. uh, She kind of liked the idea. So it just kind of stayed there for a while. Um, Ended up building my own house and my own studio and uh, I dug down extra deep in, in a hillside, designed a recording studio underground, built my house on top of it. So I've got 13 foot ceilings completely underground. So that mm. changed everything. All of a sudden, now I've got a room where I don't have to pay all that money, uh, this, you know, the studio time, and I can track. It's a lot cheaper for me to track with, with live musicians. Um, I started doing a, a thing <clears throat> where I booked five of the most versatile recording musicians in Nashville. They could play Modern rock, retro rock, modern country, retro country, jazz, R&B, funk, classical stuff. You know, the guitar player could be playing like a heavy rock thing on one song and then a gentle nylon, nylon guitar, Josh Grobeny thing on another song. So just really versatile, versatile, amazing studio musicians. I booked them in the studio. I tried it as an experiment uh, several years ago. I booked them for a week. I didn't even have anything booked. I just said, I'm going to book you guys for these five days, put you on hold, Really? have all their cartage brought in. I didn't have a piano at the time. So I rented a mm-hmm. piano, had a piano lined up to rent for the week. Piano was going to be tuned every day. All of their cartage was going to be there the whole week. And I put the word out to everybody I knew. And I said, these five guys are going to be in my yeah. studio from this date to this date. I'm selling three hour blocks for $1,500 who wants in. Took wow. off like crazy. The whole week booked up like, like that. Some guys just wanted to do That's demos. Amazing. Some guys wanted to do experiment with ideas because it was so expensive to go into a Nashville studio, have live players, pay for the card, to have the piano tuned. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to do this again. So another six to eight weeks down the road, I did it again. Filled up. <clears throat> By 2008 or nine. I was tracking rhythm section anywhere from ten to fifteen days a month. Just solid. I, I would book these guys out for a whole, a whole year. I'd book out one week out of the whole year. I'd book these same guys out. And and like I said, they were so versatile. It could be any style of music. And we, it, we, you know, they would just kill it. These are like unbelievably creative, the best of the best. You know, studio session players and the best in the world. Things started changing as as the word got out I mean what I was doing was changing everything in Nashville I I was a pioneer of this kind of thing nobody was doing it other people tried to do it other studios tried to do it and they couldn't compete because I'm the studio owner I'm the engineer I'm the contractor I'm contracting the musicians I had a deal worked out with the musicians on the side where we were all kind of price packaging things to work well. So eventually the musicians all started kind of getting setups where they could record at home, you know? And Mm. so uh, people would pass files to musicians around and just say, hey, I need guitars on this. Can you put guitars on this track for me? And they're like, sure. So passing guitars, you know, files around to guitar players, keyboard players. Um, When drummers finally started getting rooms in their own homes and building, you know, rooms and acoustical rooms, And then, you know, that started really coming back and affecting me now. Um, But a lot of people thought it was cheaper to just pass a file, to send a file to a drummer and have him do it at his home. But they charge more. I mean, you would pay the drummer (laughs) twice as much to overdub drums on a song as it would cost if we were all tracking together in the same room. The same thing with a guitar player. It's like, you're paying them nearly twice the money as it would be as if we were all tracking it together. it's not the same when you're recording all together and you're feeding off of each other creatively and the arrangements evolve, yep. you know, when you're talking and having conversations right. in the studio, right. and four or five musicians are working together, the arrangement evolves, things take a different direction. You never get that when you're passing files around.
2: So, no. you, and, and to your point, that's, that's four or five world-class musicians bringing the, the breadth of their experience to, to the quality of that, that track. Exactly.
0: Exactly. So it's a pretty amazing thing, actually, to experience it, um, to see what happens, what we do, and how fast it moves, how fast the machine of all of us, because we've we've been doing this for so long together, our rapport yeah. is so good that we, a lot of times, we don't have to say anything. The drummer, you know, the drummer could say something like, hey, Steve, I want to do that real, uh, that real vibey thing where we're going to kind of go dark and, and, and go roomy with it, and then I know exactly what it's going to do. I'll bring... You know, a fitted sheet out. We're going to put a fitted sheet over the drum kit. He's going to play it with mallets. I'm bringing the room mics up, and we're going to go do this yep. real T-Bone Burnett, real dark thing. You know, and then you know we'll you know just we just have to say a few few words, and we know what to do to go with different tones and textures and creative places where you would spend hours normally just experimenting in another studio. We've already got all this stuff dialed in, and we have so much of so much of a history of working together and a rapport. It's it's an incredibly creative group of guys that we get together on a regular basis and do this with. Now,
2: I think one thing to I really want to want to call out really quick that you mentioned, and as just part of the story, is when you made the statement that 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 artists or musicians would send a file around and just to really kind of compare and contrast, you know, today, everything happens in the context of a, of a computer. We have, we have digital audio workstations that are multi effectively the multi-track recorder. That was the giant thing that sat in the corner at, 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 Rivendell for 24 tracks. Now you have effectively as many tracks as your hard drive will, will account for. But now we're sending files around. Imagine that back in the Rivendell days, if we were to say, hey, just send this, this, this track over to Bobby Terry to put you know, put guitars on for us. Now you bring Bobby into the recording studio, but, but now you can do that sort of stuff. But it doesn't, what it doesn't do, now this draws back to comparing the technology to the talent. To your point, technology is great, but it can be an impediment. You can have a very sterile set of individual performances, or you can put four or five guys in a room and let the magic happen. So, so let's, let's talk about kind of the best of the, of the new and the best of the old, you know, because while we Mm -hmm. have all this great technology that affords flexibility, it affords the sending a file around and and in all honesty, that's been great during COVID because some people don't want to get out and about and you can go get the special musician on that might not be able to travel at that point, but it doesn't mean we've divorced completely from, from the past. Now your studio in Nashville known as one of the studios with the best mic selections. And these are not, you know, one and two-year-old microphones. Um, what's your oldest microphone that you've got uh, there at the studio?
0: I've got an RCA-KU3A, and <clears throat> I know it was made in some time in the 1930s. It's a unidirectional ribbon mic, which is kind of unusual because unusual most ribbon mics are bi-directional. Uh-huh. Um, but if you've watched the Disney movie Fantasia, Uh These are the microphones that they have on Decatree's Recording the Orchestra. That's my oldest. I have a a, a, a 77DX. It's an RCA 77DX from the 1940s. I have a Veracoustic, an RCA Veracoustic from the 1940s. And all these mics are handmade. So even though they Uh might have the, the same capsule and amplifier and tubes as the other one, and they all have a little different characteristic about them, you don't get that with microphones that you by today. Um, they're extremely warm. So we're re- we're recording in all this digital stuff which is great. You talked about you know old and new technology. I think it's one of the best times to be recording uh, ever because we've got mm. the benefits of moving around quickly and editing in pro tools and and just doing things that we've never ever thought possible. The benefits of digital technology of recording on your computer is a, is a beautiful thing, but digital recording it's it's harsh and thin. It's, you know, Mm -hmm. it sounds good, but boy, analog sure sounds great.
2: Technology has had such an impact on how music is created, but it's fascinating the the marrying of the old technology to the new technology. All right, so now let's turn our attention away from how it's created to how it's secured and how the structures of law and of distribution have been so impacted by changes in technology. And for that, we go to Barry Schrum, who's an entertainment lawyer, also based in Nashville, who has been practicing this for years and years, but also uh, teaches it over at Belmont University.
3: Well, in, in short, I, I would say that my role is to defend the rights of the creator. Um, mm-hmm. That's the succinct version. Uh, and of course, what that involves, uh, entertainers are people as well, right? And, and right. so it involves the same types of things a general practitioner in law might be involved in. Mm-hmm. Uh, we set up corporations for them. Um, we set up publishing companies like I did for my brother's. Um, we review the contracts that, that inevitably come about when you're an entertainer, you know, the recording Mm -hmm. agreements. Uh, and of course, when you expand that out to other industries to, you know, uh, celebrity agreements, uh, movie agreements, those kind of things. Um, so we do a lot of transactional stuff. Uh, but then I also cut my teeth in the litigation arena. And so I've done some copyright infringement as well, because when you deal with musicians, when you deal with songwriters, uh, inevitably somebody's song or somebody's recording is going to be infringed, uh, they're going to come to you as a lawyer to, to um, get those rights back and, and make sure those yeah. rights are forced. So Got it.
2: All right. So looking out after the, the, the being and the interest of the artists themselves, the, 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 the creator owner of that content.
3: That's right. And that's why I call the, the, the textbook that I wrote for, for, for my college course is called defending the noble arts. Mm. and, And that is a reference, of course, to P.T. Barnum's uh, quote that the the greatest art is that of defending the noble arts. Mm -hmm. Uh, So um, I use that as the title of my book, and that's kind of that's why I started there. I like that. I like that. So when we think about,
2: of course, music has been around as long as we've had, you know, humans walking around on the exactly. earth. Um, but you know, it wasn't until we'll call it the past hundred or so years that we've had the ability to to capture performances, and um, and so largely, you know, that whole world remained you know, in a sense, the same. So, in fact, there were probably lawyers at the time who were defending the rights of folks 100 years ago of how to, you know, maintain their copyrights and the things that they own. But there was a watershed moment that really occurred that the, in 1999, um, that, that really just disrupted the entire environment. What was that, that, that moment?
3: Well, I think you're probably referring to Napster. I am. That would certainly be... Um, the most recent watershed event, shall we say, in, in the music history. Um, when, and, and this one differing, of course, from the one that occurred at the turn of the 20th century in the 1890s and 1900s, where radio and the recording industry kind of started. And that mm-hmm. was of course a disruptor as well. But um, this one different in that in, in, in Napster, what happened was somebody decided, okay, I don't want to pay the music companies anymore to, 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 to get their product. I just want it for free. Right. And if I can put it up on the internet in digital format and, and, and give everybody access to that, um, that's a great thing. And that's what Napster was, right? Uh, It was, uh, every song you had ever heard in your life, um, up in digital format, and, and everybody downloading
2: it. Talk about a massive disruptor, massive um, you know in 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 your role in an entertainment lawyer's role to defend the rights of the of the individual who created the content, now it's all out there for free. All methods of tracking of how that happened before, of of who bought what
3: and who paid what now out the window. and 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 it's a whole new world. It disrupted everything, Jeff. I mean, when you, when you look at the contracts that, that, and we're talking decades of contracts, all centered around, all revolving around something called an album, mm-hmm. you know, 10 songs usually um, because that was the number that the record label would pay mechanical royalties on. And so every contract was centered around that. And then when you take that away, when you take that embodiment of the musical recording away and you put it into digital format and put it up online, um, there's nothing to buy, you know, because it was just being downloaded. Uh, Songwriters weren't getting their mechanical royalties. Um, The record labels weren't getting their retail profits. Recording artists weren't getting their artist royalties. Um, And it just trickles into the entire industry, Um, you know, and when there's less money being circulated at that level, even the lawyers, you know, we we don't have clients to represent because nobody's getting deals anymore. Nobody's writing songs anymore. So. So, yeah, it was a huge disruptor.
2: Well, and what a lot of people don't necessarily realize is you know, the folks who, who either write the song and or perform the song, anytime that's used in a public venue, a commercial, in a restaurant, uh, on the airwaves, uh, buying a CD, uh, down, even, even from a safety perspective, downloading it from, um, from iTunes, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're from that 99 cents or whatever the amount was, everybody in the chain gets a piece of that. And, you know, back in right. when, when Napster came out, everybody thought, well, I don't want to pay the big, bad, you know, music companies. What they're not realizing is that downstream impact of those folks who, you know, those songwriters are people a lot of times we don't even know their faces, know their names. Right. Uh, but they would walk out to that mailbox every, you know, once a month and look for that check that would come in that all of a sudden
3: stopped coming in. That's exactly right. The, they, they call that the mailbox money. And, you know, the songwriter loved that and, and, and they loved that anonymity. They liked being able to create something that everybody knew, but nobody knew them. They were the they were the ones who were going to that mailbox and getting that check. And that that just didn't come anymore. Right. Uh, I had clients at that time, uh, many of whom had written hit songs and, you know, were, were receiving those massive royalties um, and it just dried up. And when that happens, um, you know, the purpose of copyright is to benefit society and and get ideas into the flow of of commerce uh, so that other people can create new creations based on the ideas. And it does that by giving the songwriter or the creator a monopoly in that idea when it's expressed. Um, And that's a powerful concept that our framers came up with. But when you when you take that motivation away, when you take the songwriter's royalties away by giving away the music, then it, it it sort of quashes that desire to create something. Why do I want to go out and create something new when I'm not going to benefit from it? I mean, right. yeah, I get the joy of doing it, but I don't get any rewards from it. And you know, by the way, Mama needs a new pair of shoes. You know, Baby needs a new rattler. You know, how right. Rent is due. Yeah, rent is due. So you know now I got to go to Starbucks and work as a barista, or I've got to go to a liquor store and work as a clerk. You know, so now I got to get a job. Um, I I don't have time to write. I don't have time to create. I don't have the desire to create. So, um, it really that that's the effect of uh, the trickle down effect you're talking about. That's really interesting. So,
2: so what's changed since then? So that disruption happened in nineteen ninety nine. Of course, a lot was happening in technology at the time. You know, mm-hmm. the internet was was you know that's what spread all this stuff out. But there's also a lot that was happening, and the government gets involved in in uh, you know tries to put some tools in place. What's happening in that space now, and how is technology playing a part
3: there? You mean after the lost decade? Because you know after we had lost, a yeah. we have a lost decade there where after Napster for about 10 years, um, profits plummeted um, and they decreased by 50%, uh, which is huge for any industry. And right. it's amazing that the music industry survived that. Um, in that time and, and since, um, all the different constituents or stakeholders, if you wanna call them that, have been you know talking about how to fix this situation. The tech companies don't wanna pay a lot for royalties. Uh, for licenses. Um, mm-hmm. the, the record industry needs licenses to survive. The songwriters, as we just say, need uh, those royalties to survive. So, and then radio wants to be able to access this and, and distribute it on a terrestrial basis. Um, and the PROs, the Performance Rights Organization that you were talking about earlier that collects from the venues, they're not getting it either. So everybody has to get their hand in in the pie, has to get their voice heard. um, And that's what's been happening since. Um, And ultimately that culminated um, into something called the the Music Modernization Act, um, which I'm sure you want to talk about. Uh, And that, of course, was signed into law um, at the end of, was it 2018 or 2019? 2019, I think. So... Um, so that's, what's been happening, uh, up until the passage of that. And, and that was, that went to the floor at least four times to, 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 to the house, um, yeah. and different forms of that bill were circulated until ultimately they had enough, um, push behind it to get it signed into law. Um, so that was a, that was a major coup. And since that time, of course, um, it still is not fully implemented, um, the Music Licensing Collective, which sits here in Nashville or is here in Nashville, um, uh, was formed. Um, they are tasked with developing a massive database which identifies the stakeholder for every song. Um, wow! Which, when you think about that, is sort of mind-boggling. Um, and I'm anxious anxious to see if 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 that comes about. I mean that you know I would not want to have that task. But um, once that's in place, then then uh, digital companies and recording companies and PROs and everybody can kind of go to this organization and say, okay, who owns this song? Who's entitled to this royalty? Um, And then the the new MLC will be a another. Uh, collector of royalties and distributor of royalties, uh, hopefully on a little bit more transparent basis than it's done in the past. At least that's the idea behind the MMA.
2: So to be clear, what Barry's talking about here is the creation of a singular database of every song by every artist and all of the metadata that goes with that. Now all that being managed and run by an organization called the Music Licensing Collective. And they're also the ones responsible to capture all of the data, the streaming data and download data, and then to make sure that all the different parties get their slice of that money. Now, I went on to talk about some of the changes that the internet has brought in the music industry around distribution, which before had been truly just owned by the record label. So really, what is the record label's role in this new economy of music in the digital age?
3: Well, a number of things. First of all, um, of course, that that distributor used to be the label, as you pointed out. And I I often refer to them as the gatekeeper, because in those days, prior to um, this sort of um, um, public public uh, release of distribution on the Internet now and, and independent releases and that kind of thing, they were the gatekeepers. They were the person who could award the, the Holy Grail, right? Uh, they could give you a record contract. In those days, that was the only way to, 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 to have a career as a recording artist. Right. Um, so that was a lot of power. Um, and, and part of what Napster did do, um, albeit illegally, is made people aware that you could distribute things other ways yeah. and, and that now you have direct access to the public. Um, and so that left the record labels in the lurch. What are we going to do? What is our role? So yeah. they have sort of shifted their role into a supporting, more of a supporting role now, uh, as opposed to the, the gatekeeper role that they previously paid, uh, played. So that's one thing that's changed. Uh, the second thing that's changed is that people have become smarter about the business, uh, particularly artists and creators, um, they, they know, you know, that this is the way to do it and this is the way around that. Um, but uh, those two things end up usually, if you become extremely successful, working together anyway. Because what happens is the artist gets out here and he says, okay, well, I can, I can record this on my, my, my MacBook Pro or, or, or my Air or whatever. Uh, and, and I can put it up on Spotify and I can put it on YouTube um, but the problem is, you can put it there if you don't have followers, if you don't have enough exposure. Yeah. Yep. It's Nobody's going to, to stream it. That's right. It's, it's, it's like finding a needle in a haystack. You go out and you look for this artist, you may not even be able to find them. So, but. Some of them, as you say, have succeeded. Some of them have massive followings and some of them get viral and become viral and become successful, uh, become influencers and all that kind of good stuff. So that's kind of changed. And you've got this whole new world of celebrity that's based in in Internet influence. Uh, But as with anything there, you can only get so far without the help of money. And that's where the labels return to the action. And they say, okay, well, we can get you further. We can put marketing dollars behind you. We can do this. We can do that. We can put you on tour. Um, and we can make you a superstar, um, yeah. which is difficult to do if you're doing it on your own. Right. They can so. take that, that, that nice
2: campfire that they built for themselves and a, and a good little living in a lot of cases and turn exactly. it into something substantial.
3: Yeah. And 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 there are a lot of artists out there who do who make a really, as you say, a good living, you know, anywhere from 100 to a million a year. Um, And that's that's not shabby. Right. That's that's good doing what you do. You enjoy it doing what you love. um, That's a good living. Um, And a lot of people are satisfied with that.
2: Right, so so Barry, the folks who listen to this this podcast tend to be IT decision makers. Couldn't be farther from your world, I would think. Um, <laughs> and uh, and some of them may look from an age perspective a little bit like maybe you or I, and they may have some kids who are who are interested in this sort of, of a of a life for themselves and a career. Any advice that you might give?
3: Um, first of all, make sure you have that passion, because it's that passion that will drive you. Um, And if it's something you're passionate about, I'd say go all out, do it. I mean, again, this this new world that we live in, this new paradigm is is a a DIY world. And you can go out there and and make an impact uh, simply as yourself. And so I would say if it's your dream, go after it Um, on on the legal side, I would say, make sure you understand what you're doing and what you have and what you're creating. Um, cause you're creating an intellectual property. Um, and that comes with a whole set of rights that most people don't really understand. And so I would say, educate yourself. Um, we, I think before we started on air, we talked a little bit about your son who's going, coming to Belmont, Yeah. Uh, the curb, um, school and, 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 you know, you couldn't, 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 ask for a better career starter than going somewhere like that. So uh, I commend your son for doing that. And, and that's a good thing for uh, someone who is interested in this industry to think about, you know, become educated in it. However that, whatever that means to you, uh, find your path just like I did, you know, and, and go after it.
2: So here on Cloud Talk we spend a lot of time talking about the lofty and complex aspects of cloud-based computing and I really enjoy this series because it allows us to talk to the individuals who are being impacted by that technology. Well let's turn our attention now well to my 18-year-old son's guitar teacher. Tom Pankhurst. Now, Tom is the artist you've been hearing all throughout this episode, and he is native of England, and he is somebody who is really making his mark in the world as a guitar player, but utilizing technology as an individual tool. I hope you enjoy his story.
1: I came into guitar playing quite late in comparison to a lot of other people. I played saxophone up until the age of, I think, 11, 12 maybe, Um, and as a result of that I now really can't stand the sound of saxophone when I hear it. Um, Although if saxophone's played well, I love it, but anything less than a master level saxophone player, it it sends shivers up my spine um, as a result of doing that. Um, But then I I was relatively unmusical for three or so years and i picked up guitar when i was just 15 um and that was as a result of playing guitar hero the video game and um you know we we had guitar hero and i was you know smashing my way through that and it was great fun and it introduced me to a a bunch of new music which um, was great and it introduced me to some of those like heavier bands that i was getting into at the age of you know 14 15 which is peak angst as a teenager i think um i think so yeah and uh and then one day i was like well why don't i just play real guitar my dad's a guitarist um and he he plays guitar and he he set me up with one of his old guitars and a and an awful little martial practice amp that was more buzz than tone um which you know you know some people will probably go for as like a specific tonal choice but that's uh yeah, not for me. Um, and then... No, I, it's you're, just, just,
2: you're going for volume.
1: Yeah, you know, and... Uh, but, you know, I, I was playing on that for a while, and I was learning mostly, actually, the tunes on Guitar Hero. Um, and I yeah. was learning the, the tunes that I really liked from that video game. And, uh, and you know, I, I got into that, and then I realised how much I loved it as a, as a concept, as a... As a just a, a way to spend your time, because the, the concept of guitar is like endless. You you can become a master of one thing and then there's like 50 other things that you will never achieve on it because you spent right. so much time in one thing. Um, you know, there, there there aren't enough hours in the day to become the, the complete musician. And I think that's um, a really alluring concept as well. It's like, you'll never finish it. Um, so yeah, I got into guitar playing when I was 15 and then that was basically all I was gonna do. Um, I had already decided um, And at that point, I just finished secondary school in the UK. And then after that, we go on to college, which is something where we study for our A-levels, which is from the age of 17 to 18. Um, And I was in, I come from like quite a good schooling background, I think. Um, And I I achieved nice uh, grades and things that the things I was doing, and I completely flunked uh, my college education uh, there. Um, I should stress here that college is not the same as college in America. Um, right, right. It's like a
2: separate thing. Sounds like it's more equivalent to how we would finish high school.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, and uh, so we... Uh, yeah, so I, I I didn't go very much. And the, one of the reasons I didn't go very much was because I was really into playing guitar. And uh, I became one of those people where they're like, well, I don't see the point in going into this because I'm not interested in it. And... Right. Um, in, in all you know brutal honesty is probably a very risky move um to to do that and live your life like that um but there, there were certain indicators i think that i drew strength from was that at that age i was able to play things that potentially other people can play people who have been playing longer because i'd spent the time with it um i feel like in a non-arrogant way i have like a natural affinity to be able to play guitar um and so I took advantage of that. So I did appallingly bad at my A-levels. And my mum actually suggested that I go to do a university course in guitar playing, because that's what I was going, that's that's all I did. And she was, I think she was a little worried about me, um, in terms of- <laughs> As moms will do. Yeah, you know, in terms of the uh, the trajectory that I was on. And she was like, well, what do you want to do? And I was like, I don't know. I just want to play guitar. And then she said, like, well, why don't you do a degree in it? Um, so one of the things that I did when I decided that I was potentially gonna go and do that is I, I went and took lessons from someone from the university that I was going to go to um, so I could get the lowdown on everything that they were gonna teach us. So I, before, I like this, this is a similar thing to um, what I've been teaching my son in private lessons. It's like, you know, if you're gonna do something, go and find out everything you can about it. And then when you go in, then you can learn it, but at least you've got that foundational knowledge of where everything needs to go. Um so I did that and then I ended up going to a university in the UK called uh BIM, which is the Brighton Institute of Modern Music. I think they've subsequently changed the name as they've expanded. Um but yeah, I went I went to there and I did three years on a music course there. If you're aware of what Berkeley is, to so the music yes. scene, um this is like a Berkeley light. <laughs> um you know, like Diet Berkeley. Um Diet Berkeley. Sure. Nice. Yes. Yeah, so I, I went there and the, the range of people there was really interesting because there were people who had struggled to, I think, pass the exam to get in because it was done on an audition basis. I was really fortunate in that I, if I recall correctly, I got an unconditional offer based on my audition. Um, That's incredible. I, when I was there, I, I'd spent a lot of time playing guitar, obviously, um, but I was quite anti-social as a as a person there like everyone else was down the pub and i wasn't because i was running my modes i watched a lot of tv while running scales i think <laughs>
2: but, um <laughs> how many episodes of the Sim- seasons of the simpsons did you
1: get well, I, I know for a fact that i finished the office the u.s version twice and uh, yeah like that's that's sort of a, a lot of simpsons like uh, i've spoken to uh, benjamin about this which is uh, yeah you know if you're going to run scales and things just watch tv while you do it because it's muscle memory. And then when you need to do thinking exercises, turn the TV off, obviously. Um, exactly. So, yeah, I did a lot of that. And one of the really interesting things that I think personally I learned from that experience was how not to do things. Like, uh, I'm always observing other people and and what they do. as um, like, potentially like an anthropologist. I mean, like <laughs> just watching right, other people right. and seeing the things that they succeed at and the things that they fail at and trying to work out why they've failed at it. Um, and that's a really important skill and I went to university with a lot of people who uh, potentially through no fault of their own didn't succeed at certain things or have succeeded but one of the things that's really interesting to me is of all the people that went to my university to do music very few of them actually do music now.
2: Right, um, right. I, and I don't think that's unique, probably, no, to no. that school as well. No, no, it,
1: it's yeah. it's very true. I mean, people move on with their life, you know, music becomes... Well, like and, and
2: how many of them go there because, not just because, you know, in your scenario, you just wanted to do guitar all the time, as opposed to people who just didn't want to do academics. Exactly. And I think that's um, probably very different.
1: I think one of the, the things that really hit home with that was that we had a lesson once. I didn't go to many of the academic lessons because I'm um, <laughs> I, I just, yeah, I'm going to put my hands up right now and just be like, you know, this is me. Um, but one, one of the things that they said was, what, what's your aim of coming to university? Because we, we did a course um, that was titled Music Professional Musicianship or something. Everyone in the room gave like, oh, I want to make a living out of music. And I, I want to be in a band that makes money out of music. And I, I was the only person in the room who said, I just want to be better at guitar. Because wow. there's, there's a core concept underneath that, which is if you are really good at what you do, you can monetize it. You don't need to. You yes. don't. You, you think about monetization after the fact.
2: Yeah. Uh, you know, so let's talk about the monetization. You came up in an era of Spotify and of streaming and of the ability to have uh, an incredibly powerful recording studio literally in your bedroom. Um, so so how do you, how do you go about that? How do you, how does that impact your world and and what does that look like?
1: I think um the 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 way that we could approach this is through the analysis of comparison um so i have a friend who was in a recording band and they got an enormous label advance um and they've done consequently very well um he's no longer with that band um but he they they received like a a silly amount of money in comparison to you know those things it was a major label contract um yeah and then they were raking in loads of money from, from tours and stuff and they've done very well and they've had that label push. And then one of the other things to think about is that there's someone like uh, Pliny, who uh, you may be aware of, um, he's an independent musician from Australia, He does, a, he's in the similar world to I am, he's, he's an instrumental guitarist. He has no yeah. label influence and he is larger than them. Um, Amazing. Yeah, you know, and he owns everything that he does. Um, And so there's there's some contrasting points of view here. Um, One of the things that has obviously been very beneficial about labels is that the labels are able to fund things. They can open the doors. But as a result of that, you're going to be signing away a percentage of everything that you earn. And sometimes that can be absolutely, you know, beyond ludicrous. Um, There are people who don't own their masters. Like big pop stars don't own their masters. Yeah, it's just so, uh, briefly, what are some of those major channels um, that you use use for that? Sure. Um, so in terms of like pure distribution, as in like to get it on things like Spotify, because Spotify are just the, they're the like storefronts, aren't they? Yeah. Um, so there, there are things like TuneCore was um, like a big one maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Recently, the big one seems to be DistroKid. Um, And DistroKid is a distribution service that puts it on all of those. Yeah, you can upload a track and it goes on Spotify, it goes on Apple Music, it goes on the iTunes Store, all of those things.
2: So aside from all of the changes in how music gets distributed, I went on to ask Tom, kind of digging back into that music creation mode, what has changed in the infrastructure, the hardware, the software of how he as a guitarist goes about creating music?
1: Sure. Um, I think one of the the big changes, particularly in like a, a, from a hardware and software point of view, in the last maybe twenty years. Like, we, I'm sure if you're a guitarist, you remember like the original modellers that came out, and uh, some of those were uh, lackluster to say the least. Um, but the the technology has really, really drastically moved forward in the last, let's say, ten years um, with the advent of like the Axe Effects, and then Kemper came out. So instead of having 50 amps in a room, because they all do different things, you captured those things as um, snapshots in a software format. And the, the hardware that, that Kemper used, um, as a brief overview, you know, if you have an amp set up and you put a microphone in front, it will use an algorithm to detect how that amp responds to it. its source signal. Um, and then when you then capture that, you can then play through that amp, and it will sound almost exactly the same. And there's like A-B comparisons online, which are pretty, you know, very difficult to discern from. It's completely game-shifting thing. Like, it's completely blown the doors open. Everyone's got a, a studio at home now. Uh, you know, I've, I'm using a, a laptop. I'm using a MacBook Pro, and that's running Logic. And then for a long time, I was using uh, just my Kemper. Someone else can capture their, you know, 400 grand Dumble. And you can download it
2: for free <laughs> and then just run it so so amazing how technology now it's not just you know it doesn't take a shipping company to get that rig it's it's just an email file in a lot of cases and also you know it's totally revolutionized the way that you're creating you are in england right now you guys are hard locked down but my guess is you're still creating music with other people how does that go about in this modern world
1: i've collaborated with people on a zoom call mm. um, and we've both had a, a copy of Logic open and we've, we've sort of bounced files using Dropbox. Oh, wow. So we'll, we'll bounce down a file of what we've recorded and then we'll send it in the, in the Dropbox. They just import it to their thing. One of the things I think the industry will accommodate in the future is using cloud-based services to um, have a, a Logic file that you're both working on rather yeah. than separate ones. And then you can literally see someone else record from their studio. Um, and that's something that I'd love to see because that's endlessly frustrating when you're like, is it good? over (laughs) someone's Zoom call and you're like, is it? Yeah, Yeah, it's sort of garbled. And One of the things that I've been doing is um, sort of throwing away the the profiling game. Like, you know, we've talked about the Kemper and I've I've gone for more of an analogue route um, because I'm interested in how those analogue pieces of gear uh, respond in certain ways Mm -hmm. and because I with all of this technology you're only ever capturing a snapshot of how something actually is yeah. um, so there are so many variables like you can change the voltage on an amp you know, Van Halen used their variac to drop down the power to right. his marshals yeah. and then he ended up with a completely different tone And so that's one of the things that I'm finding really interesting as someone who wants to learn as much as I can about that yeah. um, so I've, I've actually gone the, uh, the opposite way and I've, I've been buying hardware like actual amps and things like that but one of the reasons for doing that is that everyone seems to use the same sort of stuff in a positive way more people have access to high production high level production tools than they ever have right one of the negatives of that is that everybody is using the same stuff and everything sounds the same so that's something that i've been pushing for within my own music is that non-reliance on uh, software tools and, and things like that uh to capture those things so so what I'm ending up doing now is I'm working with someone in the States, and at the moment I don't think I can say who I'm working with, um, which is fine, Um, but we're looking into, I was originally going to fly over to the States to do some recording for this new music, uh, because the opportunity was great, and um, one of the things that has obviously happened is Covid and that sort of destroyed the idea of travel and touring and anything like that. and the UK is currently, as of February, on another lockdown that's indefinite, which is great. So much fun. <laughs> um, but uh, we're actually going to be shipping this my gear or the same gear over to the studio in the States yeah. so that we can work remotely. Oh, wow. Um, so we'll be setting up a Zoom call not unlike this. yeah. And uh, we're going to be using a, a program called Audio Movers, hmm. which is a um, high-speed, high-fidelity uh Plugin essentially that you put in Pro Tools or Logic, and uh, you can hear exactly what they're hearing in real time. You know, if they're if they're capturing through an interface, yeah, then that that will come through my speakers. Uh, you know, a, a lossless format, right? Provided your internet connection is okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that that's something that's really useful, and I think will become more um, uh, more widespread. I think is that sort of um, high speed, high fidelity. Sort of audio thing, yeah. which enables that collaboration because, you know, we're going to be capturing bespoke IRs, impulse responses of yeah. the way cabinets work. I want to be able to know how they sound no. properly, no, rather than just trusting someone. I think I should stress another thing is that I'm using this in conjunction with the modellers. Okay. So because the modellers have all of this capture technology, with every amp state that we we um, capture, or. or Uh, dial in then we'll capture it as well so we've got backups of all of this hardware as software as well
2: oh wow so every everything Um, that you create you'll be able to get a snapshot and then you'll have your own unique stuff to put into the modeler
1: absolutely so yeah it's it's a really really odd world and it's it's taken me a while to get my head around a lot of it properly in terms of like the specs that we need and compatibility and all those things but Everything has sort of become so compatible now anyway because everyone runs a laptop.
2: Everyone runs a laptop indeed, and that laptop has such power in this context to help teach musicians, to help author music, to record music, sometimes with the musicians literally thousands of miles apart, and to also protect the rights of the authors of these creations. Technology, the internet and the cloud in full effect in the music industry, not from a geek's point of view, but in an industry where the tech is a tool to the talent. By the way, that app that Tom mentioned, Audio Movers, was just recently acquired by none other than Abbey Road Studios, the studios of the Beatles. Some of the same microphones and preamps that Steve Davey talked about at the beginning were of the same era of the Beatles and used in Abbey Road, now involved in the latest tech advancements of the 21st century. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode of Cloud Talk, the tech behind the music industry. Before I let you go, I wanna thank Dell Technologies, who helps sponsor everything that we do here at Rackspace Solve. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing and leaving us one of those 27 and a half star reviews and sharing this episode with your friends. Until next time, I'm Jeff DeVert.